Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a discussion episode between me and my co-host, John Hardy. Hey, John. Hey, Bob. Uh, So we've got a couple of topics for today. We're going to talk about some of the games that we've been playing, uh, history games and otherwise. Uh, But I wanted to start today by uh, going to you, John, and asking you how your... what do you call it? Is it a January term, center term? Yeah, we call it center term, which is kind of the center, the center college branding, as it were. Um, and lots of colleges have this. Um, uh, they call them winter terms. And then, for example, our good friend and former Diablo commentator, uh, Dr. Michelle Brock, Washington Lee, they have it in May and they actually call it a Maymester, which is also kind of common. So, Okay, so yeah. <laughs> uh, embarrassing academic branding going on here. Um, so your center term course was your history and games uh, class. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a debrief on your experience teaching that class again. Sure, I'd be happy to. So first of all, on a personal level, this was a really, right from the get-go, was a rewarding, fun class. It has been each time, but this is my third time teaching it. And I think I'm discovering, this is my fifth year at Center, I think that your third time seems to be the magical kind of time, because I, had, I, had I, taught, I had taught modern Chinese history in the fall for the third time, and I was like, oh, the teething problems are kind of gone. I haven't yet started overly tinkering with it. <laughs> I'm comfortable. And so, for example, uh, coming into this term, I was going to go home and just overhaul the whole thing at Christmas time while I was in Ireland, and I didn't for various reasons including um, a trip to Ireland, which involved driving across New England at one point and getting home like 36 hours later than we were supposed to and all this kind of stuff. So I kind of went with the previous models, but from the start, like from the very first day, I was in this very comfortable space. And even having talked to you, Bob, about your class and read about your class, of course, I don't know, it's it's nice to be teaching this class in the sense that even even if it's our own, our own little world right now, you and me, and speaking to people like Jeremiah McCall and people like that, it, it kind of felt... Um, it felt part of like a larger movement, maybe. I mean, I think part of that was in my head a little bit. Um, but that was kind of nice to go from the start. And I could talk to the students and and could really kind of almost give them positive feedback of like this class that you guys are in and you find interesting is is no longer this flash in the pan experiment. It's now something that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it. I'm ongoing with it. I have colleagues who are ongoing with it. Like this is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really good because that kind of fed into a broader theme about uh, that the class has been about since day one as well, which is, you know, how do video games participate in a broader, you know, um, public history type vibe in the same way that movies do or fiction does versus what do historians want it to be or what should we want it to be? And so some of the questions I asked them on some of the days were, how are video games reflecting historical understandings? How should they reflect historical understandings? And we had some great conversations about that. In in a kind of a, on a pedagogy note, um, I was terrified for the entire term because it's a very short, intensive term. And people who've listened to previous podcasts from like a year or two ago will remember this, um, that I have them every day for three hours. I'm the only class they have. There's a huge amount of investment of each other's time in each other. And in previous classes, students had expressed concern in the evaluations about the work I was giving them. And so I pulled back on a couple of the more standard assignments. So I took out, usually I'd have them, I tell them, pick a video game and write a history essay about it right? So mm-hmm. if you like the original Assassin's Creed, I'm expecting to get an essay on the First Crusade that, you know, that uses, you know, secondary sources of the library and all that kind of thing. And I completely pulled that out. And so I kept them with presentations, um, a daily update on their, on the class website that I encouraged them to be historical, but I also wanted to be kind of for the public. And then we had group presentations and a portfolio alongside their game. And the portfolio was the chance to show me the work they did. As it were. Okay. So I spent the entire term kind of terrified and told them, told them with two days to go, I said, I got to tell you guys, I said, the impression, I'm getting the strong impression you're all working hard. I can see you doing the work, but this is scary for me because <laughs> I've given you all 10% of your grade so far. You know? <laughs> well, so, last two days, you know? Yeah. yeah well, so, uh, you, you know, you're, the course is designed to have them make their own uh, historical video games. So, what were the size of the groups? You had them in groups, correct? And then I did. I did. And then what kind of development tools were you using? So um, I had 13 people this term. Um, I think that uh, both from students and conversations I had with students prior to the term, some students were being scared away because of the way the description is worded. They think they need to be able to code to make games, which is something I need to address in future terms because 
I don't know any code. And so I don't want them to have to know code. And so what I tend to do is I say, listen, there's a there's a handful of tools I would recommend to you. And GameMaker is as codey as I would get. And I would only use GameMaker if you have at least one computer scientist in your group. And I have two groups of four and one group of five. And no matter how many students I have in this class, five people is the largest I let a group get. I don't want it to be larger than five people. So there's pluses to that of group work. It's harder to go missing and stuff like that. But the minus is that it does limit what you can do if you had, quote, unquote, a larger team, right? Mm-hmm. So so I, I name dropped GameMaker, but I did kind of warn them. I said, GameMaker is, an, is a software package that advertises itself as anybody can use this to make game. You don't need to, you don't need to learn code. But if you ever actually install GameMaker on your computer and try to use it and you don't know code, you'll discover that people who do know how to write code think that you don't need to write code to make games. Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. like, they, they know how code works. And so they're like, oh, this isn't code. Like there's another, there's another software app called Stencil. And Stencil basically turns the act of coding into a graphic interface where you're literally joining blocks together in a visual interface. Now, the problem with that is, is it's still relying on if-then statements Um, Mm -hmm. various actions that to any half decent computer scientist, including computer scientist students is like bread and butter you covered in your first semester. But, but the rest of us is, is opaque. So, so I kind of said, listen, I've had groups use unity. I think I will tell you right now that in my experience, 16 days in unity, it's very hard unless you're all computer scientists. Yeah. So if I were you game makers, as heavy as I would go, I would encourage you to use, use either RPG maker or twine. And, RPG Maker is this app you can get a 30-day free trial for it. There's lots of different versions. It's always on sale on Steam. And RPG Maker allows you to basically plug your content into an early 1990s JRPG Super Nintendo style game, which immediately creates limitations. <laughs> but it does but it does give you a basic framework you can work within, right? And so two of the groups ended up using RPG Maker, and a third group used something called Twine, which we talked about in a podcast just before Christmas with Jeremiah. Um and twine is great twine is another one where if you get into the community stuff um in theory you can do all this cool stuff and in practice it's not always that easy but twine allows you to make an interactive fiction game essentially so i had a group that did did twine and they did the american wild west the american west and they had a character based largely on billy the kid a composite character based on pat garrett but with many more kind of a lawman figure and then a third figure that unfortunately they they made the wise decision of not implementing her in the game was a woman named Rebecca who was modeled after Big Nose Katie and other women working in saloons and things like that. And they wanted to kind of talk about, they had themes of violence and kind of individual agency in the West. The other two groups are RPG Maker, one of whom did a game set in a Japanese-American internment camp on the West Coast in uh, World War II. And the third group decided to... Um, they created a game in which Joseph Stalin travels back in time to stop the American Revolution in order to win the Cold War before it even begins. Um, interesting. It the was interesting. That, yeah. The idea that Stalin would want to stop the Cold War is interesting. Um, and then also, I yeah, guess, you know, in and of itself, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it fits well into kind of the video game alternate history mythos with uh, things like, uh, uh, oh, shoot, what is it? Uh, Westwood Studios, uh, Red Alert. Oh, that's right. What I'm yes. to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Red Alert, when Red Alert gets really fun, it gets into all that kind of goofy stuff. And and it was nice because, you know, they came to me with this idea on like day two or something. And I said, well, you know, it's center term. Let's ride this thing and see where it takes us. <laughs> and and, and it, what it, where, it, where it took them, interestingly enough, was it got them into a kind of, they kind of had JFK traveling back in time, which of course is anachronistic as well, even more anachronistic uh, to stop Stalin. But, um, they kind of started paying attention to how JFK channeled a very American sense of talking about the nation versus kind of how Washington started that and, and how pe- people talk with the revolution, their secondary sources. And they kind of got to kind of an interesting place. And then their group presentation, they openly acknowledged that um, timeline wise and everything else, it made zero sense, um, which I was, and, and, they, and they did so in a way it was an informed decision to ignore it and just blaze through it. And I decided yeah. that was, and I, that was, that's good too, at least acknowledging yeah. it. It was fun, you know. Was- so I'm interested. I mean, you, it sounds like almost all of your games had anachronistic elements into it. So, I mean, what was it? Was that uh, kind of uh, something that you encouraged or was it something that the students brought to it? I mean, how did you manage that? I mean, because obviously it's it's a game development course, but it's also supposed to be a history course as it well. Is. So I'm, I'm curious about that. Well, that raises a really great 
question. So one of the things I was going to do in overhauling it or at least editing it was to, to, to ground the historical stuff much more obviously. So, for example, they would have a good reading on maybe Nazi imagery or Hitler's charisma um, when we discuss Wolfenstein, right? Um, and in the end, I kind of decided not to do it. And what happens is I open up by saying, I want your game to have an historical setting or theme. And I deliberately kind of leave it hanging out there. And then as, as it goes on, I mean, I'm there. We have group work in class as well. And I'm there to kind of discuss it with them and kind of police it and shove them. And because we talk in class so much about how video games get history, quote unquote, wrong, mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily a bad thing, that, that, that I, the professional historian, instinctively feel that's a terrible thing. But there's this huge question about, well, rightly or wrongly, the public creates these public perceptions of historical events in the same way that I often joke with my world history students, the history my uncle tells me in the pub, right? right. How vil- of how villainous the English were, right? And the Irish are held back entirely by the English and everything else. And and that's that's a parody of, of, a, of a broad Irish understanding of history, but it's it's probably closer to how the Irish talk about history in a, in a very com- communal sense versus the way historians would prefer the Irish pub talk about history. And so we have all these discussions in class as it goes on about video games being wrong all the time. And so I kind of encourage that, or I don't encourage them to be wrong exactly, but I, but rather than say, don't do that thing, it's wrong. I ask them to explain why they went the way they did. So, so the portfolios they hand in then, in addition to the game, they have essays in them. They'll have an essay on the research that was undertaken. They'll have an essay on games they modeled after, and they'll often be encouraged to include an essay or at least develop the idea or deal with the idea. Um, I, I sometimes I call them historical obstacles or obstacles to making the game in the sense of how do you overcome the issue of historical accountability? Why did you make the decision that you made? And so they kind of end up getting graded on that, actually, uh, in, in the presentations. They kind of get graded on, okay, you chose to blast through historical accuracy. Can you tell me why you did that? And also, can you demonstrate at some point that you do know what actually happened? <laughs> so, you know, so for example, it was a relief I mean, I'm teasing them now because they did a great job, but it was a relief that the guys who did the uh, Cold War 1776, as they called their game, it was a relief for them to go and go, oh, yes, we're fully aware that JFK was president like years after the death of Stalin. We know that. It's like, okay, well, that's good. <laughs> and then from and then from there, and, and, and actually for them, it was going back to our conversation recently, Bob, at Wolfenstein 2, there was a lot, that particular group played around with kind of the style of their game, what they were trying to do in terms of... Um, you know, what aesthetic are we trying to create for our player? They had some very interesting conversations about that with me and in their presentations. So that was, that was interesting. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how, like- so how did you find, yeah. How did you find the group dynamic? Because when I, when I taught a version of this class, I did it, you know, every single student uh, made their own right. uh, historical game. And I'm just wondering, you know, how did you find it with the groups? I mean, was this something that was difficult kind of dividing the load? Was right. it uh, something that seemed like it worked well? I mean, just from a kind of a basic pedagogy standpoint. Sure. So the short answer is yes, it worked well, um, happily. Um, but there's a huge amount of corollaries to that. Now, I'll just go through just a couple of them. Um, first of all, my fear over taking the workout was proved, unfounded might be the wrong word, but definitely it worked out because these were probably the three most complete games I got in a turn. All three games uh, were rounded off and had a little bit of polish and stuff that previous year's games didn't. And I, and nice. I think uh, to the students' credit, it's because they took the time that they would have had to use to write their essays that I was going to give them, and they did put them into the game. So that was, that was wonderful. Um, I will say I have yet to teach this in a longer term, a typical semester, and I would have to think long and hard about how to do it. I have a sports class in the spring that's going to have a podcast component and I'm currently trying to figure out how that's going to look because the huge advantage of center term is that the students themselves are coming in with a certain set of center term expectations because there's a student culture. So we're a smaller institution, right? And they're coming into January expecting to be pushed, expecting to have a different kind of project from what they usually do. And so I benefit enormously from that. Does that make sense? Um, like they have an, they have a certain amount of buy-in that I cannot take credit for. They just have it already when they come in. Um, and that is very specific, not just to my institution, but to this term. So mm-hmm. that's a huge bonus. Beyond that, I will say um, the mo- one of the most rewarding aspects of the course is that there's very little energy spell- spent on encouraging them to use primary sources. Like they do that automatically. Like in every time I've taught this class, it's just they just go straight to the primary sources, and, and I just have to I have to 
I tend to have to encourage them to beef up their secondary sources a bit more, which, you know, it's not a terrible place to be at all. Um, and that has been good. And then I, I do have them write out confidential assessments based on each other that only I see. And this year's one were interesting where one group had a guy who just that person really wasn't putting their weight very much. They just kind of got through it as a group. Another group had a very interesting kind of like, you know, peak Fleetwood Mac type thing going on where <laughs> if, if you read the assessments, I'm like, whoa, this was a, this got hairy here and there. But, um, but just like peak Fleetwood Mac, it all worked out into some very good work. <laughs> but while saying that, I think um, group work is always, group work is always scary. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I certainly find it so. Um, I think it has worked well. I would encourage others to just go and do it and ride with it. Um, but in a longer term, I probably more hands-on. Like I might get confidential assessments every two weeks or something mm-hmm. like that, or or at least check in with students every couple of weeks and, and intervene if I was worried about stuff. Um, yeah. But it's a huge help that they have 16 days. I'm their only class. That that takes care of a lot yeah. of them for me. Well, that's great to hear about group work because I've been thinking about it a lot when um, I teach the my version of this course again. Yeah. I've got um, courses that I teach in the cyber engineering and computer science department mm-hmm. uh, here at Tech. And I think uh, I'm going to get quite a few students from there that'll use this history class as one of their you know, uh, social science electives, which is required of all students. So that would be helpful because uh, the first time, the first iteration of the course I taught, we was all upper division history students who had no background whatsoever right. in coding. And I think if I do get some of those computer science students in there, then I will kind of push them towards groups and perhaps even have them use a bit more complicated uh, development software. Well, so. What I did the first year, and I would um, consider doing it again, is that I emailed the class ahead of time before the class started and said, listen, here are three roles. I think I call them implementation, writing, and research, or so I forget, something like that. Let me mm-hmm. know if you feel one of these is a better fit for you. And I use that to try and spread the, the talent, as it were, among the That's great. And what I yeah. another thing, and it's a compromise that's easier to make in a 16-day class than it is in a long-term semester. One of my really successful groups this term, um, the computer scientist, she just ended up doing a lot of work on the nuts and bolts of getting the game to work and maybe didn't do as much as she could have on the research, which she acknowledged. And I, I tell them ahead of time that, 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 that has been, that has happened all three times. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm okay with acknowledging that. And that doesn't necessarily cost them a grade, if that makes sense. Like that, that person, right. she still got a good grade. I would have to think about that for the longer term. Yeah. Uh, for center mm-hmm. term, it's the kind of concession I'm willing to make. Um, but, but it happens routinely. There was a second group this term did the same thing where one person did basically all the work on RPG maker and, um, and you know, it, you have to kind of address it. But, like, yeah, the longer term, especially if you like X amount of computer scientists, get out Game Maker, you know. And and even in RPG Maker, one of the groups, uh, the Cold War 1776, one of the students did his own artwork. And I was really thrilled. They just scanned in some kind of, like, st- some artwork into it. It worked really well. It, it looked like it looked like a deliberate artistic choice to have these hand-drawn sprites in front of uh, the 1992 Super Nintendo Final Fantasy background. It was, I was, it, they, it was great. That is awesome. It's, yeah, it sounds good. It's, it's, the, I think group work, whether you're doing a project like this or something more quote unquote traditional, you kind of have to let go a little bit. I'm not good at that. I don't feel yeah. comfortable doing it, but, but, yeah. but usually I've been rewarded, you know? Um, well, so outside of the games, outside of the game development for the final project, I mean, what other kind of readings did you have, class discussions, anything interesting come up? So I use the History Respond videos a lot um, as readings. And I use, um, this is embarrassing, I remember, but it is The State of Play, um, a collection of critical essays right. featuring yeah, yeah. Ian Bogost, um, uh, his review of Gone Home, which is to date still the best video game review I've ever read in my life. Um, Evan Narcisse's amazing essay talking about Afros in video games. Uh, have you mm-hmm. read that one? Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I use uh, him for, I've got a section of my course on decolonizing yeah. uh, the digital past. Yeah, that's so. such a great essay. Um, and so we use that and we kind of, that becomes an interesting, I use the play the past book, which is out there, which is, you know, a decent collection of readings. And so I'm able to kind of, some days we just play them off against each other a little bit. So one of the days I said, right, we're going to talk about this notion of 
the mechanics of how a feeling has got across in a video game. This was kind of representation day, right? And they had read chapters in Play the Past about how Assassin's Creed 2 uses architecture, how um, Flight Sim kind of tries to create a certain amount of verisimilitude. You know, this idea of like, how is a game reproducing reality? And then the state of play readings had the sense of like, okay, so that's what the historians are saying. What are the cultural critics in the gaming space saying about the limitations of that or frustrations with that or how that can be received by different kinds of people? And that was one of the best days of the term, actually, because that worked really well because the students were engaged. And generally speaking, they were very quick. Again, you know, this didn't seem this in a long term where I didn't feel massive pressure to get to, to pin them down hugely on. So where's the line between? But just to start a conversation off with, where is the line between what an historian could do with the game versus what the games are actually doing. And that was a really enjoyable conversation. That was like a steady theme that we kept kind of hitting again and again and again. So um, a couple of days before that, I came in one morning and said, right, Nazis, here's some markers, go up to the whiteboard, all of you, write some stuff down about just, you, you don't don't need to consult anything. Don't open your phones, look online. When you think Nazis, what do you think? Um, and so we kind of went from there and talked about, so how does this, how does this, present itself in the first Wolfenstein game. You've all seen the video last night, there's three spawn video. And this sense of trying to kind of figure out why would historians have an issue with this? What kind of themes do we consistently see coming to the fore? Why is a video game choosing to dwell on these? And why do we think it's important? In particular, the history Respond episode, Evan Torner's frustrations with the game's treatment of the Holocaust is something we've talked about for quite a while. Um, where Evan says, you know, I'm annoyed because they're not talking about the Holocaust. They're talking about the way that we talk about the Holocaust. And we were able to bring in Call of Duty World at War. Um, you and others have written about this, Bob, um, in the same kind of a discussion of, um, so what is the quote-unquote reality that's being per- being portrayed by the game? And what does that, what does that matter? Um, and my students generally were very sympathetic to the notion. They kind of kept saying, well, it's a game. Uh, they're trying to entertain. Um, and they were kind of extremely forgiving of that while at the same time they seem to be very comfortable with just kind of going oh yeah but you know it's not right but we're okay with that they're they're making decisions they have to make and then we can see mm-hmm. historians and we can draw conclusions from it so mm-hmm. this particular classroom uh, has a computer with a 1080 card in it and so we were playing the first 20 minutes by sugar infinite and we got as far as being asked by an npc to throw to throw a baseball at an interracial couple and then we talked about race in the game and, and the, the, the game's portrayal of the founding fathers and stuff and so they seem to be in a space where they were very forgiving of the games being all over the place historically, but they liked having the conversations that kind of unpacked it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, anything, any kind of like takeaways, uh, lasting thoughts, um, uh, anything you might change for next time just to, to wrap up? Next time, I won't teach it again for about two years more than likely. And so I might take another run. I still, I can't help it. I would like, for example, when we discussed the Nazis, it would be nice to have a more grounded reading that, that doesn't even mention video games and maybe ask the students to make the connection between the reading, for example, and the History Respond episode, right? I, I still think I still think that'll be an improvement. But all in all, um, you know, we had a wonderful conversation one day where we went from the classic Is Games Art conversation with Roger Ebert through some of Ian Bogost's comments and just talked about, you know, why are we, you know, why are we even having this discussion about whether it's art or not? And and I was really pleasantly surprised at the sustained, just the um, the fluency with which our students talk about this stuff. And they just have, and you know, Bob, you and I have very little hangups with video games. Obviously, look what we're doing right now in this podcast. <laughs> but like, and, and, I, and I know that my students are somewhat self-selecting, but they have like zero hangups. And and it's not like they were all call of duty players or what have you i mean you know i usually get a couple of guys in this class who like just play cell phone games or something or don't you know they it's just fascinating in such a brief period of time our current college students the traditional aged ones the 20 year old ones are 15 years younger than me and um already you can see that there's a whole new vocabulary with games they just have none of the restraints even the subconscious restraints that i have and i i think that is nothing but good news for the kind of work we're trying to do here in the future. So it was on that, on that kind of macro, you know, ideological level, it was enormously encouraging. Good. Fantastic. <laughs> well, congratulations. Nobody died during the class. I hope Nobody so. died. not even that many uh, bad hangovers. It was good. It was a good class. Good. <laughs> good. 
Uh, well, while you've been teaching your class, I've been in the midst of playing Assassin's Creed Origins. Um, and this is a game that uh, I got for free, uh, a review copy uh, from Ubisoft uh, in the fall, but I hadn't really had a chance to jump into it uh, until the middle of the uh, winter break uh, here at Louisiana Tech. Uh, and John, I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence mm-hmm. uh, about this game. I don't know how much of the coverage you've been following. I've been following a bit of coverage and spending all this time with my students for the last three weeks. I had a couple of students playing it. And okay. certainly one of them, I think, was a bit more into it than you, but another sound, another was making similar sounds to what you're making. And they both said, it's different. Yes. Yeah. So it, it is quite a bit different from previous Assassin's Creed games, which, you know, I think given the context of Assassin's Creed and what's happened to the game industry outside of it, it makes a lot of sense that they would make these changes. But at the same time, it does feel so different that it's almost not an Assassin's Creed game. Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, it, it really leans heavily into RPG elements. So uh, when you attack somebody, you have numbers, uh, coming off of them, wow. uh, denoting you know how much damage you've caused. Huh. Uh, there is also uh, DPS stats for weapons. Huh. Um, there is quite a bit of crafting uh, in the game. Uh, and then there is a lot of emphasis placed on uh, your level uh, compared to the levels of other uh, NPCs. Wow. So for instance, uh, there's a lot of gatekeeping that goes on uh, when you go to a new, a new area, it is uh, demarcated based on what level the enemies are at. Huh. So if you are not at the level of those enemies, you are going to have a very difficult time, not only uh, completing missions, but just surviving. That's, that's MO uh, style. That's like a World of Warcraft. Style. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, for instance, uh, it was the kind of a hilarious realization on my part. Uh, I, I got the hidden blade. Uh, it's not a it's not a default weapon. It's something you get through uh, the very early parts of the game. And once I got the hidden blade, I assumed I'd just be able to instantly assassinate people. But assassination is dependent on what level the enemy is. So, for instance, I went into Alexandria with uh, I was kind of two levels below mm-hmm. uh, the city center for Alexandria. Uh, and I got the hidden blade and I started trying to use it to assassinate people. <laughs> and, uh, instead of killing them outright, it would just kind of badly wound them and then they would just get back up. <laughs> and that I think is that is kind of the key difference for me is the fact that the hidden blade doesn't actually assassinate people uh, immediately. Um, there's also some other differences in how the game uh, presents history or the fact that it often doesn't present history uh, at all. Uh, so for instance, there's no in-game database mm-hmm. uh, in this game. My students said uh, that to me and I was, I can, I can yeah. honestly say I was taken aback by that. Yeah. So no in-game database. There is some brief historical descriptions for different items that you pick up. Uh, sometimes uh, during loading screens, you also see little, uh, tips and snippets of advice. And some of those have historical material mm-hmm. in there, in, in, including uh, they've got some of these in, during the loading screens, they've got true false questions uh, regarding the past. So one of them is, uh, you know, uh, was Ptolemy's blade partly made out of uh, 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 a substance from a meteorite, right. right? So it's kind of encouraging you to you know, Google uh, Ptolemy's weapons. Right. Um, but otherwise, there's no real heavy use of historical detail in the same way that you had in previous iterations of the game. And, you know, that's it's it's not unexpected, you know, given how much they're trying to break from the past yeah. with the series in general. But they have talked up the fact that this game is kind of more you know, well-researched than past iterations. But it might be the case that they're just holding that back for the uh, Discovery Tour mode, yeah. uh, which should come out this year, which is going to be all focused on historical detail. I don't know. I would hope so. That would be a cool... I mean, I likened that in our discussions in class to Valve's classic kind of director's versions of a couple of their games, you know, where I mm-hmm. I replayed Portal 2 once just listening to all the, the you know, common uh, developers talking about the game, and I, I thought it was great. Um, so I, 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 w- I would hope you're right. I think that, that, w- that could be implemented in such a great way, but... I've had students who are enormous fans of the series as a whole who cite like, you know, being able to go into the database and read about Catherine de Medici as 
something they like mm-hmm. about the game. And, you know, Bob, you and I are fans of Giant Bomb for many years now. And I was listening to Vinny Caravello on their podcast before uh, the Game of the Year deliberations. And he's his big Assassin's Creed fan. And and he just kind of was, he was like, they said they're going to change it, but why do they change these things? And that's kind of, that was the one bit of coverage I've heard. You know, I yeah. kind of thought they would change in some other cool ways. And instead they've just, they've changed in ways I wasn't expecting. Um, I, I agree with Vinny's perspective yeah. a lot. Um, you know, I think, and there's other just minor things, you know, like uh, for instance, the, the climbing uh, is really, uh, really easy. I mean, you don't even have to think about it now. You just kind of hit a and keep running. You don't have to look for handholds right. unless you're trying to climb the pyramids or some of the really large structure. Right. Uh, so that's taken out of it. I mean, the combat is very different. There's a heavy emphasis on using a shield uh, and then also dodging uh, rather than using a parry right. attack, which has kind of been a, a mainstay yeah. of Assassin's Creed combat. And, you know, those kind of changes are kind of easy to understand because they involve gameplay. They involve kind of taking in what's happened to open world games uh, in the game industry, the AAA space over the past five, six years. Right. right? Um but at the same time, the the kind of lack of the historical detail that you know had been a part of those previous games is a little bit disconcerting and very surprising. Um, but I hope you know maybe it's going to come back in Discovery Tour. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I guess we'll just have yeah. to wait and see. I mean, I think Ubisoft deserves credit for shaking things up. But it's fascinating to me. I know this is, I know this has been evolving for a while because so many of my impressions of um, Assassin's Creed go back to the first two games but the combat almost always seems to like passively aggressively bad to me in the sense the game is like you should be <laughs> running on rooftops and diving in and then disappearing into the crowds kind of thing and so it sounds like there's been a fundamental yeah. shift in the way you play the game yeah. which is matched by their approach to history as well that's really interesting yeah and you know that that combat aspect is uh, it really plays out in the game because of the level system right. so you know because you can't necessarily assassinate somebody at a different level that means that there's a lot more instances in which you're just in open conflict right which is very odd for uh the assassin's creed series you know most of that uh, series is based on stealth it's based on assassinating from distance or close up but trying to stay hidden. Whereas in this game, I mean, it, it's very kind of uh, focused on open combat, mm-hmm. on dodging, on using a shield, using combos in attacking enemies. So it's, it's very, very different. Um, I should make a brief note about the game's narrative. I mean, there is some, uh, you know, veneer of history uh, that's presented. Uh, so the game takes place at the end of the Ptolemaic period uh, in Egypt, uh, so this is uh, right before uh, the Romans take over Egypt. Uh, you've got uh, Cleopatra facing off against her brother Ptolemy for control of Egypt, for control of Lower Egypt uh, primarily. Uh, the game takes place in uh, all of Lower Egypt. I think Upper Egypt and then the Sinai Peninsula are going to be DLC territories. But uh, in Lower Egypt, you've got uh, Giza, uh, you've got uh, Alexandria and Memphis. Uh, and then all the areas in between. Uh, and with regard to the presentation of uh, Cleopatra and Ptolemy, uh, there's some interesting angles. So, so for instance, there's a sense within the game that uh, Egyptian culture, Egyptian religion is under threat uh, from the Greeks, mm-hmm. uh, which seems a little bit odd because, you know, the Ptolemies uh, – the Greek dynasty that was established by Alexander the Great, I mean, it's been in control by this time for a couple hundred years. So the idea that local Egyptians, including the main character, Bayek, feel as though uh, there's outside pressure on Egypt, like to get rid of Egyptian belief systems, to get rid of Egyptian gods, it seems like that's a process that would have taken place sooner uh, in the Ptolemaic period rather than at the very end. So that's a little bit strange but i do i do really like the fact that there's so much emphasis on religion and culture in this game and i think it's a really useful game uh for instance if you were to talk about uh something like uh, the colonized past uh in digital games right so 
uh, Bayek, uh, the Egyptians, they feel under threat. They feel as though their culture is being appropriated or it is being destroyed and replaced by uh, foreign culture, by foreign habits. Uh, and you see this not only in several of the side quests, but then also uh, in the architecture of the game where you get to a city like Alexandria and Memphis, where there's kind of competing zones of these cities in which it's kind of traditional Egyptian architecture and culture. And then it's right up against, you know, like a Greek temple uh, or a library or a barracks or something like that. So there is kind of some interesting, you know, historical themes that you could unpack and you could use in a class. Um, and it's just, it seems, again, it's kind of one of these odd moves of uh, placing that kind of narrative within this specific uh, late, late Ptolemaic uh, time period. Yeah, it raises really interesting questions because, you know, my first reaction as you were describing it, this is all news to me, of course. I'm not, I'm certainly not accusing Ubisoft of, you know, being Orientalist or whatever, but um, it is interesting that they move it to North Africa, Egypt, of course. And of course, they're going back to a very, this has to be the oldest setting chronologically, comfortably so, right? I know. I was thinking of, uh, you know, historical movies, right. and novels, you know, all of the sword and sandal films of the late 40s going through the early right. 60s are, are basically set in this exact And you period. think of, you know, you think of the, the craze almost of Egyptology in the early 20th century and it's still with us in some ways. But um, I don't know. It's very interesting when you – if you were to compare um, – origins to Assassin's Creed 2, for example, and then compare how off-base they are um, with the Renaissance versus how off-base they are with Egypt. That That's kind of one way you could start to critique it, even though I know Da Vinci was this like ludicrous character and they've always done that kind of thing. But as you say, and this is something that I think about a lot recently, especially when I teach the class and everything, to what extent do they need that kind of wiggle room to make this really interesting case and whether or not that was something they consciously decided to do, do we feel it's worth the trade-off? You know, that's kind of, I think that's a really interesting thing to be thinking yeah. about. Um, Cause there's a lot to be said, like you're saying, there's a lot to be said for being able to show that to students or talk to students about themes of what it means to be colonized beyond the imposition of governmental structures, you know? Right. Yeah. It's fascinating. Right. Yeah. And so I, I think that that's kind of one of the reasons I'd recommend the game. But for traditional fans of the series, I think this is a really strange game. Uh, but it is encouraging, I would say, to have so many people who are not traditionally fans of Assassin's Creed kind of adopt this game as uh, something worthwhile. Um, so I, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. I think that uh, makes the game a positive entry. Uh, it's just as somebody who's, you know, kind of <laughs> played all of these and uh, enjoyed the series, it's it's a big departure uh, in a lot of different ways, both narratively and then also kind of in terms of gameplay and structure. Yeah, because you preempted my, you preempted a question I was going to ask you in terms of how it diverges from kind of this historian's perspective. But if you were to compare it to Syndicate, Assassin's Creed Syndicate, for example, um, I mean... Is, is Assassin's Creed Syndicate something you did for the channel and some work on it? Is that not to a certain extent doing a similar thing of repeating the way that we talk about that period of English history? Or do you know what I'm trying to say? Or is there some kind of through line there? Or is Origins just this very clear break from what they've been doing in the series? Because you're, you're more familiar with the series than I am, actually. Well, I mean, I uh, I don't want to pass judgment on it just yet simply because on Origins, because I don't know that much about this time period uh, and about the setting. But I'd say with regards to Syndicate, um, you know, it was surprising to me how many of the elements uh, in that game uh, were relatively true to the historical moments. Um, you know, I think, for instance, of the ways in which they depicted some of the uh, major side characters, people like uh, Darwin and uh, Florence Nightingale and... Uh, 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 Oh God, Karl Marx, <laughs> probably the most famous out of all of those. Uh, you know, there's, uh, again, it, it captures, I think, pretty well the sensibility of the age, right? Uh, not just in kind of a general historical sense, the way that you might present in a survey class, but then also uh, in a sense that people would be familiar, kind of what you're referring to the public, mm -hmm. you know, the popular memory mm -hmm. of that time period. With this one, uh, you know, it's hard for me to judge because I don't know it nearly as well as I do uh, Victorian true, yeah. uh, 
And so, you know, I'm interested to see uh, what our guests on the upcoming episode of uh, AC Origins for History Respawn, what they say about this. Something that I, struck me this month hugely, and it, it strikes me every now and again as well. I remember a few years ago when Red, Red Dead Redemption came out and you and I fell in love with that game completely. And we would we would kind of, you know, daydream about God, wouldn't it be wonderful if Rockstar just like picked an historical setting and did a Red Dead style game in that setting every year, you know, like, I don't know, like mm-hmm. Fendisac Vienna, you know, like whatever. Um, Assassin's Creed has done that. And, and I look back and I'm like, my God, there's such a, a deep roster now of historical games. And they are one of the first games my students start to think of when you start to ask the question. And the reality is they are giving you material to work with. They have, of course, hired Maxime Durand. There is a commitment within that company. There, there is thought being given to the history of it. And so mm-hmm. I, I guess I just, I, this is more me talking aloud. I, I, would, I, I mustn't take it for granted what they have done. Um, and so, and, 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 I, and I suppose they had to change something. Like the, the French Revolution game, from my perspective, may as well never have happened. I didn't even notice it. <laughs> you know? so they had to do something so hopefully this is part of a corrective process that works out for them i i hope we're they are they they do produce a bunch of historical games and i'd love that to continue yeah and i'm, I'm kind of waiting to pass judgment final judgment at least until i see the discovery tour mode uh which i think it's supposed to be out pretty soon i mean uh i was told sometime early this year uh, so we'll see. Uh, you know, I, I think that that will uh, kind of make or break this game mm. uh, for me in terms of its applicability for you know the classroom or even for recommending right. it uh, to somebody else. I would say you know the game is fun. Um, it's just that I've I've been surprised by how different it is from other other titles uh, in the series. And there's often a time where. Are often moments where I I can't understand the reasoning behind the changes, um, uh, but that's that. So I've talked plenty about Assassin's Creed Origins. I'm interested in hearing you talk about the historical game you've been playing recently. So the historical game I have been playing is Metal Gear Solid Five, um, because it's been sitting there on my PlayStation Four waiting to be played for a couple of months since I got it in PS Plus, and. Um, I will start off by saying Metal Gear games are 100% historical, and I always talk about Metal Gear Solid 4. <laughs> my class. Yeah. Metal Gear Solid 4, for me, is one of the best examples of, of, of the way that I see Metal Gear as an historical series in the sense that the Japanese historical context of that game slaps you in the face in 4 because yeah. all his themes, okay, there's the nanomachines and the private military corporations and everything else, but Snake, Solid Snake is getting old, war has changed, et cetera, et cetera. And that game has such a kind of a, you know, an el- not even elegiac, but such a kind of a resigned tone of like, I guess this is the world we live in, you know? And for me, as mm-hmm. I talk to my students, I'm like, this is Hideo Kojima, first of all, he's such a strange creator. I'll get onto him in a second. But um, he does have clear authorial intent, right? In the same way that Bioshock Infinite is not a game that I would say that I was crazy about. But Ken Levine tried to do something in that game, which included a clear historical kind of influence. And Kojima is trying to do something. And whether or not Kojima himself, how self-consciously aware of it he is, Kojima is the subject of a country, Japan, which is the only country in the planet that has been subject to atomic attack. And that has an article in this constitution that forbids it from being an agent in warfare. Now, people who know something about Japan's military, self-defense forces, and so on would very quickly point out, well, it's not quite that simple. I, I know it's not quite that simple. But um, if you look at Japan today, there's still a majority of people in polls only a couple of days ago who would say um, that they don't want that to be revised. So there's this very interesting Japanese sense of like, where the heck do we stand in this post-war environment, which has only gotten more models since 9-11. And I think, mm-hmm. I think that very clearly directs all of the Metal Gear Solid 4, Metal Gear Solid um, universe. It's just saturated with it, you know? Um, and so I was curious. And then, of course, Metal Gear Solid 5, Kojima messed around with continuity so much, or sorry, he messed around with his continuity so much. Um, much like Metal Gear Solid 2, we are now back in the depths of the Cold War, um, whereas in Metal Gear Solid Five, you are in Afghanistan. You're operating in Afghanistan as the Soviets have invaded. So, and there's lots of interesting kind of things that that come from Kojima's own 
kind of humanist universal ideas about humanity, but also are, have a stark context. And so you're looking through your binoculars and you press the Intel button. It's like, ah, the Soviet soldier. And um, we're seeing more Russians now in the not Central Asians because it's easier to kill a man when he's not the same race as you, you know, which is a very kind of Metal Gear solid kind of a thing to say. But it's, <laughs> but it's kind of an interesting comment on what the Soviets are doing in Afghanistan in the 80s. Um, you can listen to all these recordings. Um, I'm not ruining it too much. I'll just say you're big boss and you're recovered from a hospital bed very, very early in the game and you have all these amnesia problems. And so you're, I'm, 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 ro- I'm roaming around Afghanistan listening to a recording of Revolver Ocelot explaining the partition of Cyprus to my character. And I'm just like, this is so strange. This is so strange. And I think I love it. And for the first hour of playing the game, I was like, I'd forgotten how silly Hideo Kojima is. There's this long, stupid speech this character gives you. We're now we're dogs. We're diamond dogs. You know, this is ridiculous, over-the-top madness. And then the game teaches you how to knock a man unconscious, tie him to a giant balloon, which tears him off into the sky as he screams in, 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 in fear. And it is absolutely mm-hmm. hilarious. It's just hilarious. And so this game yeah. takes itself way too seriously. And then it's hilarious. And then you play for an hour and a half and you realize that you've been lying down in the underbrush for 10 minutes just to get the Soviet guy at just the right time. And you remember that Hideo Kojima can make a good video game. Um, But historically, there were the two things going on. Um, The sense of how much Kojima operates within this kind of post-45 Japan context. And then secondly, when he gets into 80s Afghanistan, how he's playing with that idea. I just find it absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I think, you know, it's so funny to me because uh, what's interesting to me, and, you know, we've kind of joined, uh, you know, talks with uh, other historians and media scholars over the past few years talking about historical video games. And the Middle Gear Child series is one that doesn't really come up very often in, in that talk because I think most scholars would see it as just blatantly ridiculous, right? right? This is Which it frequently is. Not even something defense, you, know. you would even bother. Yeah. yeah it's something you wouldn't yeah. even bother discussing. But at the same time, because of Kojima's uh, perspective and his context, these games are actually some of the most explicitly historical games that are out there, right? He is making an argument about not just, uh, you know, kind of Jap- you know, Japan's uh, perspective, but also about kind of the state of world affairs right. after uh, 1945, after the Cold War, during the Cold War. I mean, these are very explicit statements, and he hits you over the mm-hmm. head with that with that rhetoric quite often. Um, and you know, it's been a big, big dream of mine, and I, I suppose you too, John, of, to cover this series for History Respawn and to do it, you know, with you know a, a realization that it is you know ridiculous, right? <laughs> this is kind of uh, alternate history par excellence, but at the same time, it is so explicitly about. Um, uh, about current affairs. It is so explicitly about the history of the 20th century uh, in the way that I think really great sci-fi yes. is, right? You know, it's not about uh, these fictional realities, these settings, but instead it's about our, our current state of affairs. I agree completely. You know, I think, and the Metal Gears themselves are such obvious expressions of, um, you know, the dangers of technology and the reality where technology has taken us. And, the game, a little bit like Resident Evil, although they're, they're very different kind of games. And we talked about Resident Evil quite a bit too in the class because I'm a Resident Evil fan. And because I showed them a trailer for Resident Evil 5, one of the most, you know, pretty hard, the, you know, the first one they ever released for the game set in Africa. So it's like, so talk to me why this is a problem, you know. <laughs> but, you know, they, again, this sense of like a, 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 a misunderstanding from, a misunderstanding of how race can or should be discussed, particularly in American context. But the, 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 the Metal Gear games... Um, you have this, the, the perils of technology and even in the genre um, conventions of the, the betrayal and, oh, this guy's actually this other character and everything else, even in the ways that it's doing that, I think there's such a, a kind of a weary depiction of all this, you know? And, and so even when, you, even when you're retconned back into the midst of the Cold War, there's such a kind of a weary, this all ended and nothing got better kind of vibe to it, which, which is actually, I think it's a very clear historical statement and, and is really interesting and i think it is the kind of thing i think you and i should sit down and start to unpack a couple of these games we should do like a metal gear solid one through five playthrough or something <laughs> we should really just well 
I know, and I should mention I've, I'm actually within sight of a copy of uh, the HD remastered collection for uh, Metal Gear Solid Two, Three, uh, and uh, I think Four. I can't tell from here, but uh, but it's a PS3 that I've, I've had for the last year that I haven't opened yet. Uh, um, but that I thought hopefully that can change uh, within this year. And I think you're right. I think we really do need to pursue this. Maybe we could try to do all the games together or we could do them individually. I mean, I think the obvious ones that we should try to pursue are uh, MGS3 uh, and then 5. I think those two are kind of so. obvious contenders. But there's elements within all of the games that have, you know, kind of this perspective. Yeah, exactly. And just the sense of, you know, institutionalized unending warfare, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. the ability to stop it. And so even the central characters i was so happy that i got to do my solid snake impression during class which is just me saying huh? <laughs> <clears throat> that's like why would you pay Kiefer sutherland to do that i never understood that in Metal Gear solid five but um just to sense yes he's this ludicrously macho almost john wayne style character the entire overflowing narrative of the game is this is basically pointless like these characters are pointless they're being completely rewarded by everybody around them but nothing actually ever changes um and mm-hmm. that's a really um despite war having changed there's this there's this ongoing problem so th- there's a lot we could definitely get into and i can't wait to see what death stranding does i mean who knows what the heck it is going to do i don't know i can't make sense of any of that I what just, is, yeah and part of me doesn't want to try to make sense of it before <laughs> it comes out that's my one feeling. of the traders gave me a kind of a a bit of a third reich vibe with some of these zombified kind of soldiers but um like a flash of it but let, let's wait and see Let's wait and see. So uh, I thought we'd wrap up by kind of briefly talking about what else we've been playing. Uh, So, John, do you want to go first? Sure. I've gotten a bunch of game playing. I'm not sure how. I think it's just – I actually know I have no idea how. And I've been playing playing a game (laughs) called Oxygen Not Included, uh, which is a game where you're kind of creating a little space base. The makers of Don't Starve made this game. and it's it's kind of it's it's like rim world or even dwarf fortress it's one of these games where you set up jobs for your characters to do and then you try and keep them alive and i tell you bob it, it was it was 12 30 in the morning and i had to get up early to go and teach and i successfully created a filtration system that turned the uh the water coming out of my lavatories into drinking water and i was very very happy about that That's getting <laughs> but i'm also playing steam world dig 2 which is charming and rock solid gameplay like and the music is great. I'm so jealous. Well, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording. I loved the first SteamWorld Dig, but it was over in a heartbeat. Yeah. And Same all here. I know about SteamWorld Dig 2 in terms of reception is that it was well-received. I've deliberately kind of avoided people talking about it. Um, and I must be three or four hours into the game, and it is ex- excellent. I, I, I couldn't recommend it. If you have even if you have any kind of an interest in Metroidvania games, or and even if you don't, I think you'd you'd, you'd got to give SteamWorld Dig Two a shot. It's it's a really good game. Oh, it's really. Good. I can't believe it. I'm so so I just, jealous. To start uh, off, I was worried it was a little bit easy, um, and uh-huh. it, it never gets hard. But um, but that 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 faded away. Like the the puzzle and everything. It's it's just a really, for lack of a better term, it's a very tightly made game. It's 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 it's, nice. it's a rock solid game gameplay wise. I really like it. Good, good. Uh, well, for my part, I've been uh, obviously concentrating a lot on Assassin's Creed Origins, but uh, I did have time to uh, play and then finish uh, Pyre, uh, which is the latest title uh, from Supergiant Games. Uh, they also developed um, uh, Transistor. Uh, and then what was Bastion? That's it. Yeah. Uh, so this is a game developer I really like. I kind of bounced off Transistor, uh, their uh, previous title, uh, the one that came out before this. But uh, Pyre uh, attracted me. It has kind of a uh, it's a mixture between a visual novel uh, and then a sports game. Uh, so you spend most of your time talking to characters in a visual novel format. Uh, and then you uh, have these sequences uh, called rights in which you are essentially playing uh, uh, a game that's a hybrid of hockey and basketball and football. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of, it's really hard to describe. It's really hard to explain. But 
Uh, overall, I think this game, it was fun, but I think that the visual novel aspects really kind of let it mm. down uh, near the end. The story becomes less and less interesting, particularly after, uh, I'd say, maybe uh, after you're done with the first quarter of the game where you have your first liberation, right? And the game, I think it's weighed down by the narrative because so much of it is um, kind of a very heavy-handed metaphor for uh, the prison system uh, in the United States and then also uh, the debate over uh, execution, state executions. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think it's the type of game that could have – I ended up playing it for – about 12 or 13 hours, I think it would have, it could have made its point in probably about six hours, six or seven hours. Um, I would say though, that uh, the gameplay, especially the sports aspect is really pretty solid. I think it's fun. Um, it, you can also play it uh, in a versus mode if you have friends uh, who've got the game. Um, but for my money, I just felt like uh, it was just kind of an overly long game i mean there was points you know about eight or nine hours in when i was just completely skipping the most of the visual novel aspects i i uh, i've only just started it and it reminded me of banner saga which i played a ton of over christmas um i finished banner saga and started banner saga 2 like immediately i'm about halfway through banner saga 2 now i haven't touched it in a couple of weeks and it was a similar thing which is banner saga has these strategy uh tactical sorry tactical game gameplay sections sandwiched in between lots and lots and lots of story um Mm -hmm. i like banner saga for people who don't know it's it's a norse mythology infused fictional world that's really nicely done and banner saga does what xcom enemy unknown did really well which is it kind of forces you into decisions and you lose stuff so i was recently in a in an environment in banner saga 2 where one of my kind of soldiers slash companions said oh we're being attacked by these guys if you can defeat all of them, but leave that one bear alive, then I will take care of him, right? But your guy Mm -hmm. is killed before you get to the end. And so not only did I not get to tame the bear, I just apparently get to take him on as kind of a playable unit, but I lost one of my playable units. And I just sat there staring Mm -hmm. at my computer annoyed uh, because I couldn't go back, you know? Um, But it actually makes Mm -hmm. the game really strong. I don't know maybe if that's an issue with Pyre, that the visual novel element is too... Because Banner Saga does just enough to make you feel like there's elements of risk in the choices you're making. Yeah. Well, actually, the thing is, is that Pyre doesn't penalize you for losing matches. So, uh, for instance, it keeps reminding you over and over again that uh, your story will continue. Right. Uh, the narrative will basically unfold in the same way if you lose all your matches. Um, I went undefeated uh, because I'm the best. <laughs> uh, but... I've played uh, the you know, it, it does remind, games. Yeah, it does remind you that uh, you know there's no need to save scrub. Uh, there's no need to you know go back and reload if you lose a match because it, the story will continue regardless. And I think that that fact actually hurts the game. I think if there was some more uh, more stakes in the matches, that it would have been more interesting. I would have been more interested in the narrative, but because there weren't you know those kind of stakes i felt i mean i just thought that the characters were kind of largely disposable um and it has too many characters also um because you you think you're close to the end of the game about eight hours in and then something happens and you end up with three or four new characters that you're supposed to get to know and i just by that point i was kind of checked out i Uh, yeah i um i will say as well in the issue of dealing with an important theme you know, people like you and me scream out for games to do more of that. And then there are people out there who would complain when we complain that it doesn't do it well. And the problem is mm-hmm. that you do, actually, you do have to do both of those things. And I mentioned it earlier, but if you're listening and you haven't read Perpetual Adolescence, which was on the LA Review, LA Review of Books and his Ian Bogos review of Gone Home, it's well worth a read because he directly, he doesn't say Gone Home doesn't have a good story. He actually just jumps straight to the idea of, what have we decided a good story is? Um, and what's the point in arguing for this as a medium if we're going to give if we're going to give credit for something being like a mind-blowing, amazing story when it's not? In the case of Gone Home, a well-told story that doesn't knock anybody's socks off. Or um, in the case of Pyre, it sounds like ultimately it didn't quite hang. Well, you know, movies have that weakness too. So the, how yeah. it is difficult. I don't know how we get to the space where we can do that without 
I, we don't have the crit- critical environment yet. People are trying. People are out there working on it, but it, it's very hard to do. You know, I felt the same way. I especially felt this way when doing the episode for Call of Duty World War II uh, for History Respawn is that I was left feeling we should expect better by this point from games, yes. right? It's time to stop giving games a pass on this kind of material, especially when it comes to something like Call of Duty and kind of regurgitating yeah. the greatest generation narrative. Um, but at the same time, that game also brings up the Holocaust, mm-hmm. right? The culmination of the game mm-hmm. is a, a trip to uh, a, a concentration camp. So, you know, that's that's the kind of move that you would want to see. It's just that you wish that it wasn't so ham-fisted yeah. uh, in its approach. And I feel that way with Pyre. It's like, you know, sure, it's great that they are delving into uh, this terrible problem in American society, the prison system, executions, et cetera, fantastic. But is it enough just to bring it yeah. up, right? You've also got to execute on that. We would expect the same thing, like you said, from other mediums, right? You know, people are constantly taking movies and TV shows to task for bringing something up and not delivering right. on it. Right. Uh, why Why do games get a pass, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I think... I think if we want more out of games, if we want them to have this uh, kind of cultural weight to them uh, and respectability, uh, then we need to push them more. We need to, to push developers. We need to, uh, to push the writers. Uh, we, need, we need to push everybody involved to do, to do better, right? And I think to a certain extent that also includes critics, right? Because I think sometimes they often, they go a little bit soft, right? They... They don't bring their best uh, to criticize. Well, it's, as much as film critics or people who love film, I think video game critics or video game people who love video games in a different, slightly different kind of a way. This got up in class when we discussed the notion of video games as art or not as art in the notion of mm. a defensiveness, like a communal defensiveness. And, and so we talked a little bit about how in its darkest moments, this has brought us Gamergate. This has brought us women yes. and others not yes. feeling included in a community um because you know as i find frustrating when certain certain sections of the video game community get annoyed that the wider community doesn't doesn't have the values of a bunch of 15 year old boys you know and it's like well i'm not 15 anymore um and i and i and i don't like revisiting being 15 so this is not this is not helpful and so i think that there's a very slight echo of that in video criticism and, you know, I remember back when Gone Home came out, I tried to write a blog post about it and just made a complete mess of it. And it was just a bad blog post. It was one of the few I've ever taken down because I was unhappy with it because it, it brought me across wrong. But my frustration with that game was this game, while deserving of credit, does not deserve the reception it's getting from people who, for example, were turning their nose down on The Last of Us, which is one of the best story games ever made. But they had decided that that wasn't what they wanted the story game to be. Gone home was, and now you're just. And I can see where people are coming from, and it's but it's not it's not helpful. And how do you? But how do you do it? How do you, especially? Oh, I don't know. I don't know how you do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if you have contact with the developers, or you've encouraged them, or you've said previous things. Again, yeah. if the developers can go back and say, "But you're the guy who said it wasn't enough X last time. Now you're saying it's too much X. That's not fair," and that's a difficult thing to figure out how you navigate that as a writer in the public space you know yeah i just you know i don't know what the answer is i don't know how you do it but i just know that it's time to push for better right i mean uh uh obviously i think uh, you know we're kind of in agreement on that but i think you know wider it seems like wider journalism and wider games criticism is also eager for that as well i mean i saw that in the coverage for call of duty world war ii right and that people were upset with the ways in which the game uh, used history and authenticity as a marketing tool. It's like, okay, great. Well, why don't we do that with other mm-hmm. games, right? Non-World mm-hmm. War II games, right? We all kind of feel like we own the Second World War and its history. It's all a part of our kind of identity, very much so for Americans. Why don't we get upset with this when other games uh, use history as a marketing mm-hmm. tool, right? Other historical time periods. Um, I think it's just, to, it's time to expect and push for better, I agree. And I think, and I think because people are producing better already. So you get into these very interesting questions about, uh, let's not start bashing large studios kind of thing, but there's, <laughs> there's 
Well, I think electronic arts always do yeah. batches. Well, there's this whole institutional thing of how much we're being held back and everything else. So one of the current debates is the whole the microtransaction stuff is getting completely out of control. Well, I mean, that that certainly betrays all a whole system of pressure that developers are under at those larger studios, um, whereas indie gamers could do something different. But we'll see. The new Total War game is set in the Three Kingdoms period, and I'm super excited about that just because they could go so many different directions. Um, and, I th- mm-hmm. and I'm wondering what they've learned from their Warhammer experience, um, which was full-on fiction. Because, of course, The Three Kingdoms is a novel, but also is an historical period of time. So, uh, you know, which way do you go? You know, you have a choice. And so, I, and I think video games can do that very well. I think Wolfenstein 2, I don't like it as much as the as Wolfenstein New Order I think it fails in some huge ways, but what an interesting game. And I'm really glad that game exists. And I think that game is moving the medium. I think it's moving the needle in some way. Um, artistically, yeah. I'm trying to say. And so, so yeah, it's, it's there and we'll have to just, uh, we'll have to see. Yeah. yeah. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back in the coming weeks with John's episode on Wolfenstein and with my episode on AC Origins. Until then, goodbye. All right.